say, well, let's jump into Psalm 73. If you want to follow along in Psalm 73 in, a, in act, an actual Bible that you can hold, uh, go to page 579 in your, uh, your pew Bible. They're underneath the seats uh, in front of you. Grab one of those. Don't be afraid to mark those up if you have a note uh, that you need to make in there. And people sometimes say, I don't have a Bible. May I have this one? And we say, yes. Uh, go ahead and take it. We'll restock it. Glad to have you own one. So imagine uh, you're at 1958, back in the day when rules were different than they are now and regulations were different than they are now and uh, you're in the kitchen and your four-year-old child runs in holding a bottle of rat poison and says, Mommy, this Coca-Cola doesn't taste right. I think it's bad. Imagine that. Well, what would, you, what would it be like for that to happen? Well, you don't have to imagine. I can tell you because I was that child. I was four years old. I run into the kitchen. I tell my mom, spewing stuff out of my mouth, this Coca-Cola doesn't taste right. This Coca-Cola tastes bad. And she was draped in horror and went right into action because I was holding this bottle of liquid Rat poison. I mean, this isn't calm rat poison that just gives the rat an upset stomach like we have today. This was, what is that stuff called DDT or TDD or whatever that stuff was that they no longer allow? I mean, this was the stiff stuff that I had gotten my hands on and took a sip of. And I cringe now when I think of how, how lax things were back then. Things were different. Those are the days when my mom, when she stepped on the brakes in the car, she had to go like this. Remember why? Because the kids weren't belted in. No one wore a seatbelt. The kids were standing between the driver and the passenger to get a good view, and she didn't want me to go through the windshield. I bet you my dad got a lecture from my mom about, Art, why did you leave that so low that the kids could get to it? But if my parents were alive and here to tell the story, I think the story would be a little bit different. Something like, what are you talking about? You pulled the stool out, you climbed up onto the sink, and you reached up to the top shelf where we had put that stuff to grab it. So don't blame it on us. It was all about you. But the point was, there was poison that I took initiative, I chose and took initiative to grab this thing and seduced by the fact that it might be a sweet syrup of Coca-Cola, I instead ingested the poison. That was what happened back then when things were lack. But it hasn't changed in some ways because isn't it true that we still, seduced by the possibility that something could taste sweet, as adults, even as followers of Christ who should know better, don't we sometimes get out the stool and climb up on the sink and go out of our way at some level of risk and reach for the poisons of life and take sips of things that we know aren't going to be good for us isn't that still the way it is? And that's what this psalmist in Psalm 73 is talking about. We're careful about harmful substances now when it comes to keeping them out the reach of our children. We're not nearly as careful about harmful substances that we ingest and harmful ideas. We're thinking that uh, when it comes to our own souls, this is going to taste good. And it actually is going to bring death. That's why I've entitled this message, Drink This and Die. That's Psalm 73. Drink this and die. And one of the most effective poisons 
that we choose for ourselves. And I think maybe even in our context in Marin County, this, this, there's a big, bigger bottle of this, is this idea of jealous envy. We look and we see and we feel some sort of a deficit. We feel insecure, our insecurities rage and we feel like we have to keep up and we look at what somebody has or what they're experiencing, uh, what they know, what they've been get what's been given to them, and it's very easy for us to slip into this idea of jealous envy, one of the great poisons of the community in which we live. Imagine this. You're in sales. You go to work. It's time for bonuses. And you're coming before your boss and you're giving your report, and the boss says, hey, how'd your sales go this year? Did you make your numbers? And you know that you worked hard, that you had a good plan to make your numbers. There was something outside of your control that happened and you didn't quite make your numbers. But it wasn't because you didn't work hard. You just didn't make them. It just didn't get there. It's going to get there, but it didn't get there yet. And so you, because you're a follower of Christ and a person of integrity, you want to just give the real facts to your boss and say, here's the deal. I know why. I know what I'll do about it uh, for next quarter, but I did make my numbers this quarter. And that means you don't get your bonus or you don't get as big a bonus as somebody else. But then the next person in the room, you walk out and he walks in. And this person tells the, neither did this person make their numbers. But of course, they've got a different story. They've got a way to make it sound as though they did make their numbers. They got there. They sold this many drugs. They sold this much, this many cars, whatever it might be. And they can tell the boss, here, I made my number. Here's what it looks like. And you know that they're fudging. They're fudging the numbers. They're not telling the truth. But the boss buys it. And they get their bonus. And every day when you see them drive up to work in their new car... You were, you're reminded that they made bonus and you didn't make bonus. And when you have the year-end company banquet and they're the ones that come up and get the nice plaque, best sales figures of the year, you know the only reason you're not getting the plaque is because you chose integrity. And the only reason they are getting the plaque is because they didn't choose integrity. Some of you don't have to imagine because some of you have experienced that. Maybe from both sides of it. But if that's you, how are you feeling inside? I'm not feeling real good. I'm thinking, <laughs> if that's what it takes to get the reward, what in the world am I doing? I mean, shoot, the people who tell the truth get the shaft, and the people who tell the lies get the gold. What kind of a deal is this? And I'm not primarily talking to my boss about that. You know, on my bad days, on my dark days, who I'm talking to about that? God. That's Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. Go read the prophet Habakkuk. That's what Habakkuk is saying. What, are you sleeping? What is the deal? This is a bad system. This isn't supposed to work like this. The people who do good are supposed to get good reward. And the people who choose not to do good, who not, choose not to practice integrity, shouldn't get the reward. But you're all backward. It's like you're, you're, you're playing chess up there with one of the angels and not paying attention to what's going, down, what's going on down here because it seems like everything's flip-flop. And the evil are rewarded and the good are punished if that's true, God, why in the world should I practice good? Feel that at all? Yeah. A, the evil don't have the cancer, and the good do get the cancer. What's the deal? That's Psalm 73. And this idea of jealous envy 
It needs to be addressed. So what I want to do is I want to read the first half of the psalm and then just make a couple of observations, some of which will be obvious and some maybe not so obvious, but let's, let's shoot for that. And if you want to open to page 579, you can read it in the book. We also have it cast up on the screen, but listen to this psalmist making his complaint. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's his presupposition. And he builds on that and says, surely that's true. That's why none of this is making sense to me. None of this is adding up. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Hello. They have no struggles. Now, he's not going to state facts here. The wicked have struggles. Everybody has struggles. But here is the psalmist expressing how things feel. This is how it looks to me. This is how it feels in the extreme. It's like they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and their bodies are strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And from their calloused hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations, so it's as though they have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression, usually so they can add to their wealth and their power. And their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth and therefore their people turn to them and they drink up waters in abundance. They have every drink, they, when they get thirsty, they have plenty of water, more than they even need. And they say, how would God even know what we're doing? Does the Most High know or see anything at all? And this is what the wicked are like, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. And I, the psalmist is implying here, I mean, they, they're free of care because when they see a problem, all they have to do is write a check to fix it. I have to go get a third job to fix it. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. All day long. And every morning it's as though it brings new punishments. That's the psalmist offering his complaint. And that's the first observation to make here in this text as well. Because he's, this psalmist is a great teacher and is reminding us in this psalm, and it'll make more sense as we finish the psalm, of the danger of sipping from the envy, from the jealousy bottle. There's a danger of drinking that drink. Yet, so often... Even when it's out of reach, we sometimes climb over everything that's in our way to get to it, to gulp it down and to indulge it. I'm looking at what your experience is, and I'm remembering what my experience isn't. I'm looking at you making the bonus, but me practicing integrity. I'm looking at whatever it might be, you having the children that you abuse, and me longing for children that I can't have, and wishing I could be a parent of those children. Whatever it might be, we look and we have jealous envy and jealous envy. Indulging that, tolerating that, is like drinking rat poison and expecting to be healthy. And the psalmist reminds us of that. 
I mean, in a couple of places, like in verse 2, where he, ta- he talks about the danger that it can cause. In verse 2, he talks about how, well, actually, indulging that is kind of, in order to indulge that, you have to slip to a lower place, slip from a higher place. Remember, he says, I almost slipped and fell. <coughs> I almost went all the way with this jealous envy. The slipped and fell idea is what caught my attention. Like, you have to choose to step down to something less. To, to be jealous of, to be envious of what people acquire as a result of dishonesty, of being irreputable people. Jealous envy is kind of like cancer. You can't mess with it. It's not going to say, oh, I caused enough damage. I believe I'll recede. I believe I'll go away. Jealous envy is like a tumor. You have to go get it out. You have to take care of it right now. You have to cut it away because its plan is to take over everything. And I guarantee you, it will take over everything if not immediately or very quickly excised, dealt with, shrunk down, attacked, and taken care of. It can cause you to slip, to move from a higher place to a lower place. And in verse 10, 10 through 14, it it can cause faith to malfunction. That's one of the dangers of sipping from this cup. It, it can cause a doubt in God's faithfulness. Let's turn back uh, and, and look at this, especially in verses 10 through 14. So let me read that again. Listen to what jealous envy has done and, and what it does to this psalmist's theology when he uh, tolerates it. Therefore, he sees things uh, as they are not. His theology is slipping, it's being broken. There are people turn to them, they drink up waters of abundance. They say, how could God possibly know? Does the Most High even see anything at all? Huh. And this is what the wicked are like. They're always free, go on amassing wealth. And then this, surely in vain I have trusted in you, because you're not trustworthy. That's what the psalmist is saying. Jealous envy, when we indulge it, when we bathe ourselves in it, when we allow our hearts to float in it, causes our theology, our faith to malfunction. And we start seeing God uh, in ways that are not an accurate representation of him. In fact, just the opposite. He no longer looks merciful. He no longer looks just. Quid pro quo God, justice. He no longer looks generous. We no longer see him as somebody who sees because the first verse said, surely God is good to Israel. Surely He takes care of those who are pure in heart. And then we see the pure in heart struggling and the not so pure in heart sometimes prospering. And what's our only logical conclusion when we base it on false presuppositions? He's not good then. Jealous envy poisons our theology. It causes this major malfunction in our faith. Let me address something in that kind of thinking that I believe is... something the church should be really cautious about. People should be careful about this. Sometimes, as I said, it's our presuppositions that tilt our lives. Our theological presuppositions that aren't necessarily refined, nuanced, or accurate can bring us to conclusions that aren't healthy. They're poisonous conclusions. And we're seeing one played out in the first half of Psalm 73 because he's saying, and he says this truly in the first verse, surely God takes care of Israel, takes care of the faithful. That's a true statement. But that true statement can sometimes take on 
things that are false. Here's how we state it today. Uh, uh, You're going to want to throw something at me, but I want to tell you something that we often say that isn't necessarily true at first take. It's a phrase that maybe you've used. This idea that God is in control. So what's normal if God is in control is what the psalmist said in the first verse. He's in control and he takes care of everybody who has faith in him. So when it appears that those people who have faith in God, a God who is in control, when it appears as though they're not taken care of, what's our, what's our conclusion? What's our logical option? We go back and we say, well, I must have blown it because God who is in control could have stopped this from happening to me, this evil, uh, could have stopped this reward of injustice. We've got to start figuring out how then to view God when we see him not measuring up and things are not making sense. Two plus two is equaling five, the way we look at that. Well, here's, let me, let me give you some, some things to chew on. Write these down. You might want to go back and look at these later. Maybe I'll even focus on this, folk, this section in my devotion. That We always write a devotion after our sermons, by the way. Hope you're aware of those. They, you can sign up for those. and We try to take the sermons a little bit deeper in a short devotion that's on the website. But these texts, 1 John 5, 19, Romans 6, 12, Ephesians 6, 12 through 16. I'm not going to read those now, but I want to give those to you to go back for further thought, maybe today over dinner. Those texts remind us that we live in a fallen world, a broken world, where the evil one is in control. That's why evil happens, because evil is in control of our world. Where evil is not in control is where people choose to say, God, I give you control. God is in control of people who enter the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the agenda of God. People like most of us in this room who have said, Jesus, you be my boss, my Lord, my leader. Forgive my sins. I surrender my life to you. And I am now going to line myself up with your teachings, Jesus. So now you're in control. And the church, when she's functioning in a healthy way, is like this just, this justice-minded parenthesis in a world that is controlled by evil. And in that parenthesis, in that yieldedness to God, God is in control. That's what following Jesus is about. You take control of my life. I want to do your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that's talking about this evil world where good happens because people choose to follow you. And in that life, in that kingdom of God that we've chosen to enter, to step out of the influence of darkness and into the influence by our choice of Jesus Christ, then God is in control there. We've given him control. Now one day, make no mistake, he will be in control of everything, whether anybody likes it or not. So he's ultimately in control. But you see how that works? Here's the kinds of problems that happen when we don't really understand the nuances of that. Well, I buried my nephew who died of respiratory ailment, failure, and I feel awful about it. I prayed for him, my sister, and I didn't, this didn't really happen to us. This is a, a pulling it out of the air, okay? My sister and brother-in-law prayed for him. They were faithful, they were generous, they were tithers, they were whatever you'd want to measure to be a good Christian. 
and their child died. But God is in control. So God must have a reason for having mandated that this child die. Because God is in control. See, that's not the way to look at this. That's a poisoned, malfunctioning theology. Here's a better way to look at it. We, a more biblically accurate way to look at it. Look, we live in a broken world where people die. It was never God's intention. Some people die of cancer and some people get healed of cancer. Stuff happens. The fact that my nephew dies doesn't mean God is not merciful. The fact that my sister and brother-in-law can survive burying their son, that's what's merciful. That's the goodness of God. Because what's normal in this world is brokenness. And what is the fantastic miracle is that any of us can find our ways from the beginning of it to the end of life in the midst of all that evil. The fact that there is a church that says we understand justice and we will put our foot down when there's no justice. And we understand people's needs and so we will practice generosity. And we understand why God has given us businesses and caused us to prosper and taught us lessons. It's because there must be the expansion of the great parenthesis, the church that dips herself into the evil of the world and says, well, it may be evil as the norm everywhere, except not in this kingdom. In this kingdom, there's goodness. In this kingdom, in this community, there's kindness. In this community, there's forgiveness. In this community, there's mercy. In this community, our arms are wide open. We will walk with you through whatever it is you're walking in right now. And there's evil everywhere around, but we are sort of the Noah's Ark of life where you don't have to drown if you jump up on in here. There's life in here. Come live it with us. And it won't be perfect, and we'll still have funerals. We'll still do hospital visits. There will still be broken relationships. But here's what we got. We got this flag flying over this boat. Hope. What is here is a foretaste of what will be everywhere one day when he ultimately does exercise his control. Now, do you see how when we don't quite when our presupposition is that nothing bad should happen to those who follow Christ because God is in control, then we assign to God and make him responsible for all sorts of things that really suck. If he's in control, huh, and we see the things happening that we see happening, what kind of a God is that? But if evil is in control, and God is making respites of good through his church. Now that's God we follow. Can you see the psalmist's frustration? Jealous envy. Hmm. Don't want to drink from that bottle. The danger of sipping it goes all kinds of sideways. But the psalmist doesn't just stop by giving us the problem and introducing us to the poison. Love that. In the second half of the psalm, he says, that's the poison, that's the bottle from which you don't want to drink. But here's the antidote. Given the last two weeks of sermons from psalms and what the foundation of psalms is about anyway, it should come as no surprise to us that the antidote for jealous envy <clears throat> is worship. 
I start sensing that I've gone over the edge with jealous envy, what do I want to do to cure it, to excise it, to deal with it? I want to worship. I come in and I start to worship even before the jealous envy has left. The idea of worship, the word worship even, is, to, is the idea of, you've heard this before from both pastors, the other two pastors, the idea literally of getting down on your face and kissing the feet of Jesus is to kiss toward, is that to put your worship, the word translated worship. And I picture myself getting on my face, grabbing the ankles of Jesus, not even willing and worthy to open my eyes and kissing the feet and saying, oh, oh so good. Holding on to you is my only hope. It's my only hope of wholeness. It's my only hope of hope itself. My only hope of practicing mercy. My only hope of living into that parenthesis that the church really is and that foretaste of what the world will be like. Listen to what the psalmist says when we start with verse 15 because here, here he goes. If I had spoken out all of these things, these things we just read, I would have betrayed your children. I felt them, but I couldn't yield to them. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. If God is in control, why this? If God is in control and I'm following God, why did I experience this? Why did I not experience that? When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, and then here we go, the remedy, verse 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood. Until I worshiped, and then I could see. I was reminded. I got perspective. I got balance. Now, what he writes now can be troubling because it can sound, if we're not careful, as though he's saying, ah, I knew it was happening. I knew that the day was coming when that person who lied to get the bonus going to get her due, get his due. And there's this description of the future of those who consistently reject Christ, reject God. But we've got to be careful not to do what sometimes the church has done over the years and read all this, oh yeah, the day's coming. The, you're not, somebody told me between services, not every payday is this Friday. You know, the wages of sin is death. You're going to get yours a week from Friday. It's never Christ-like to read this and say, yeah, baby, I cannot wait. Some, the day's coming when you're going to be the one looking up at the sword. The day's coming when the knife is going to be at your throat. The day's coming when I'm going to have the power and you're not going to have any, and I can't wait. The day's coming when the trap door will open and you will fall down the door and burn in hell for the rest of eternity, and if God will allow it, I'll be the one that pushes the button that opens the door. We cannot go there. Here's the heart of Jesus. He comes and he looks at Jerusalem and sees that they're climbing the stool and the sink, reaching up to the top shelf and reaching for a bottle of poison that's going to, that's going to kill them. And what does Jesus do when he looks at Jerusalem? He weeps. No, 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 no. It breaks my heart that you're choosing that. Please don't choose that. I'll do anything I can to help you choose something else. This stuff may be true that the future is not good for those who reject Jesus, but I'm not going to enjoy it. I'd rather have you come along and receive this future that Jesus earned for it. It makes us sad. It causes us to lose sleep. It breaks our hearts. It makes us sick to our stomachs that anybody would choose a future that's not positive and good and whole, right? Come on, church, be that church. 
Don't be enjoying the fact that people are going to get theirs. What kind of a merciful heart is that? Jesus doesn't know that heart. But the psalmist states the fact, surely your place, you place them on a slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. However, suddenly, uh, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. They were nightmares. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was a brute. I was a beast before you, verse 21 and verse 22. So there's this malfunctioning of faith that happens when we, when we allow jealous envy to linger. And we quit seeing ourselves properly, but worship makes an adjustment. Worship said, oh, now I see my, what was I thinking? You're so good. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. So worship helps us to see ourselves more accurately, sees the right vision of ourselves again, but it also reestablishes a well-functioning, healthy theology. We see God differently. And then, verse 25. This is one of the best verses in all of Scripture, I think. This is the essence of worship. If worship is a journey, this attitude, this verse, describes the destination. It says, Whom in heaven do I have but thee? Besides thee, I desire nothing on earth anyway. Can you picture yourself on your face, grabbing the ankles of Christ, kissing toward his feet with that attitude that says, whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee, I long for nothing on earth anyway. I just long for you on earth. There's no room for jealous envy when all of our mental room is taken up, consumed by that kind of an attitude. You're all I want. You happen to be all I have. Nothing's of greater value to me than you. That's a statement of recognition of true wealth, isn't it? I know what's really worth something, and I know what's not worth something. And forgive me, when I was all lost in jealous envy, I was, I was saying the stuff that's worth nothing is worth everything, and the stuff that's worth everything is worth nothing. But this verse reminds us, oh, no, 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 no. I am a wealthy man or woman when I have Christ, when I have integrity, when I have honor, when I have respect, when I've told the truth, when I've followed the teachings of Jesus, when I've surrendered myself in humility and said, you, you lead me. You teach me. You guide me. You've got me. I love you. You love me. And I see it that way. And nothing else matters. Listen to me. Jealous envy it, it, it entraps us, it poisons us, it kills our souls, but it makes no sense either because to choose what we're jealous for over what we actually have as followers of Christ, you listening? It's to trade down. Why in the world will we want to trade down? Why would we want to trade gold for sawdust? That's what the scripture's saying. That's what the psalmist recognizes. How does he recognize it? He worships. He comes and says, oh, draw me in. Oh, Lord, adjust my perspective. Fix my blindness. Take care of my hunger. Help me think 
rational, biblical thoughts again. I don't want a, 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 a malfunctioning theology. I want a functioning, healthy understanding of who you are and who I am and where we're going together in response. Because whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth anyway. If that's the case, then the good news is we have everything we desire. And we're rich. I want to finish this message. We're going to go to communion and the band's going to come and lead us in some more music worship during that communion. But I want to conclude with a poem that was written by one of our own members, Steve Westbrook. And it reminds you that, yep, my mom was hysterical on that day. And I remember that day that I drank that poison. My Uncle Mario was there visiting, and he took a raw egg, broke it open into a glass of water, and asked me to drink it. Told me to drink it. He may have even forced it down my throat. I don't know, but he thought that was going to help. I remember that. And I remember the ride to the hospital in my dad's patrol car. He was a Santa Clara police officer back then. I remember the crazy ride and the sirens and, and being thrown on my back in the back seat and somebody sitting next to me, I, probably my mom, I don't know. My dad was driving. They raced me over uh, to the hospital. And I remember the nurse saying to me, oh, little tiger, Greco, we're going to wrap you up in a white sheet. You're going to look just like a bunny. I remember that like it was yesterday, which is all significant for you. I understand that. And I remember the procedure. I had a hallucination. I didn't know it was a hallucination. I remember perfect squares that were like the squares of lemon treats, you know, like fudge squares, perfect squares, coming out of my mouth. Foo, foo. Just flying out. I remember that. Now, I am confident that it looked quite different from the doctor's perspective. <laughs> but 60 years later, apparently, I got what I needed to make sure that I survived the poison I had consumed. And the psalmist today in Psalm 73 wants to offer us what we need in order to survive the poison of jealous envy. Worship. Steve Westbrook, our beloved member, wrote this just a couple months ago. He said, both to Aaron and for us too, your word has promised and decreed that you, O Lord, are our portion, true, and you are all we need. All I need if health should fail or loss of loved ones brings sorrow, all I need when I fear my worth will pale and I face uncertain tomorrow. But as I learn, it's true that you are all I need and your love my fears undaunt. I find when to my heart I heed that you're also all I want. I said the message was entitled, Drink This and Die. And we're going to give you a chance now to experience a different message. The message entitled, Eat and Drink This and Live. For on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took up the bread and said to his apostles, This is my body. This is the bread of life. 
eat it and live. This is for you. And likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood. The blood of a new covenant. The blood that forgives sin. From now on, whenever you drink of this cup, remember me until I come back for you. Drink this and live. Live.